0: So I'd like to welcome you to lecture number six of the theology series for those who are watching online and some are listening on podcasts and of course those of you who are in the room with me. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon our evening. Lord, we recognize that you alone are God and sometimes we forget that and sometimes we act God-like in the wrong way and we desire to act like God in the good way, uh, to have your character, to represent you well to others so when they see us, they have an idea of what your character is like. But Lord, we don't want to usurp your authority. We don't want to tell you what to do. We want to be your servants and serve you and let you tell us as master what you want us to do. And we come here tonight so we can learn more about our, our master, our God, our Father, our Lord. We ask for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, for him to guide us into all truth, for me to speak well of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, and of you, Father, as well. So bless our evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, lecture number six, Theology Proper. We start a new section tonight. Theology Proper is what theologians call the, the study of God himself. So we'll be studying about God. And so, my job here is to explain the unexplainable and for you to comprehend the incomprehensible. So we will not succeed completely, but God does want us to know him. And I want to remind you that as we study about God, we want to be careful that we're not just gaining information. We, we want to know him as a person, as a living being, as we study about God. So just like you can't know everything about other people in this room or people in your family, even the person you're married to. You can't know everything about them. But the more you study them, the better you know them. And so we want you to know God better. But obviously, since God is infinite and he has no limits, we can't know everything about him. So we're a little bit like the child who looks at a star and we're reaching toward the star. And we're, we're headed in that direction, but we don't touch the star. So if you look on your notes, page 29... A.W. Tozer, who was a well-known Christian Mission Alliance pastor, author, man of God, wrote, what we believe about God is the most important thing about us. What we believe about God is the most important thing about us. And I would say he's true. I would say that's true, what, what Tozer says. And then Paul Little, who's a Christian author, he writes, our belief about God, or lack of it, inevitably translates itself into our actions and attitudes our belief about God or lack of it inevitably translates itself into our actions and attitudes and that fits with what we were studying when we were studying about the Bible how God wants to go from his mind into our mind into our actions and so as we get to know more about God we will be affected by our attitudes our actions how we live there are a lot of misunderstandings about God and I just want to throw some of them out here as we start So as I list these, these are man's misunderstandings. Sometimes people ask the question, if God is, and there's a blank there, you could fill it in with a number of things. Uh, I I put three things in there. You don't have to fit all three, but I put, if God is good, or you might put, if God is loving, or if God is all-powerful, how can he allow such suffering in the world? And so you hear that a lot. How could God allow such suffering? When we see crises, especially when it involves children, uh, it breaks our hearts, of course. And people say, well, how can there be a loving God? Or how could there be a good God? And if he's good and he's loving, then how can he be all powerful if he doesn't intervene and do something? Because if he was all powerful, he'd intervene, and if he's good and loving. So we'll talk about that as we talk about the character of God. Another misunderstanding people ask sometimes, why is God punishing me? Why is God punishing me with this physical ailment? What have I done wrong? So when something goes wrong in their life, they feel like they're being punished by God. Why is God punishing them? Often you'll hear people say something like this, I don't believe there is only one way to God. I don't believe there's only one way to God. What about all the devout Muslims or Buddhists or Hindus? They are good people. Surely God wouldn't send them to hell just because they believe differently than you. And how would you respond to that? So we'll be talking about that not only in this lesson, but when we get to soteriology, which is a study of salvation. Some people think the the important thing is that you are sincere. That's what counts, as long as you're sincere. Next one, as long as you have faith, that's all that matters. That's what some people believe. Just have to have faith. Keep the faith. Have faith. Well, faith in what? And then people might say, well, personally, I think that the way to heaven is dot, dot, dot. Fill in your blank. Sometimes the way to heaven is good works. The way to heaven is whatever. But people have their own idea on their way to heaven, how to get there. And you notice it says, a correct understanding of theology proper, which is a study of who God is, enables us to easily and accurately answer these and other problems that men So if you want to be be able to answer these questions for yourself or for other people, you need to know who our God is. You see, the problem is not with the character of God. The problem is not with the character of God. The problem is with the thinking of man. The problem is with the thinking of man. So often we attack God's character, but there's nothing in God's character that is deserving of attack or is faulty or is lacking nothing in his character so when we have an issue with who God is the problems with us the problem is not with God there's something about us that is off not something about God that is off so we're next going to talk about the existence of God how do we know that God exists and I don't know if this is a legendary Story. I don't. I don't know if it's true, but one of the cosmonauts in space—that's the Russian cosmonauts in space—allegedly declared, "I don't see God anywhere out here." To which one Christian replied, "Take off your spacesuit, and you'll see God." <laughs> um, the cosmonaut is not alone in his disbelief in the existence of God. Over the centuries, the following proofs have been given to demonstrate the existence of God. So how do we know God exists? Now, we can show it from the scriptures, but if someone doesn't believe the scriptures, how can you argue that there's a God if they don't believe the scriptures to begin with? So the following arguments um, that we'll see in a minute after we see a comic, <laughs> the, the following arguments are philosophical arguments. They're, they're not taken directly from the scriptures, but they're taken from man's wisdom that tend to prove that there is a God. And we'll look at those, and they've existed throughout the centuries. But first, of course, we have a Calvin and Hobbes comic. And I'll be Calvin, and there's only Calvin. So here we have Calvin, and he has a sled out. And he's looking at the grass, and he's got a sour look on his face because he wants it to snow. And so he scrunches up his face and has that evil look and says, If I was in charge, we'd never see grass between October and May. And then he looks up toward heaven and says, on three, ready? So he's speaking to God. One, two, three, snow! Nothing happens. I said, snow, come on, snow! And then we have the cartoon with him running around beating his, his arms, going, snow, snow! And then speaking to God, okay, then don't snow. See what I care. I like this weather. Let's have it forever. Please, snow, please. Just a foot. Okay, eight inches. That's all, come on, six inches, even. How about just six, as he grits his teeth. And then shouting to God, I'm waiting. And then he runs around in circles, Aah! and then he's all pooped. And he says to God, do you want me to become an atheist? <laughs> <laughs> this is a good example of people who create a God in their own image. And when that God doesn't do what they want them to do, they say, I don't believe in that God. It's interesting, there was a university student, he went to a college, a Christian university, and he was struggling with his faith. So one day, this student who had been raised a Christian, going to Christian university, had an appointment with one of his professors. And he met the professor and he said to him, I don't think I believe in God anymore. And the wise professor said to him, tell me what God you don't believe in, and I probably don't believe in him either. Because we tend to create a God in our own image, who we think God should be. And Calvin, of course, thinks God should be a God that he can cry for snow, and he gets snow, and God should cooperate with him and do exactly what he says. And if we think back to the very first sin that entered the universe, it was a sin of of Lucifer, the star of the morning. And we know him as Satan, and he wanted to be like God. And that was a sin. And that's in Isaiah chapter 14. We'll talk about that when we get to theology with sin. And then we think of Adam and Eve and the first sin that ended the human race. They wanted to be like God, and they were promised they could be like God if they ate the fruit, and they wanted to be like God. And ever since then, we tend to want to be little gods, or we want to be like God. And so that's a danger for us, and we want to tell God what to do. And I remind you that we aren't to tell God what to do. He's to tell us what to do. So let's go ahead and look at the five philosophical arguments for the existence of God, page 31 in your notes. Um, First one, number one, it's called the universal belief argument. And it goes like this. All cultures in every area of the world and in every time period have had or presently do have a belief in a supreme being. All cultures in every area of the world and every time period have had or presently do have a belief in a supreme being. While the concepts of God are often distorted or misrepresented, nevertheless, the idea of a supreme being exists worldwide in every culture. Even atheistic culture believes in the idea of a supreme being, though denying his actual existence. Such a universal concept has no other rational explanation other than the explanation that a supreme being does, in fact, exist. So that's a pretty strong argument. Why does every culture everywhere have some kind of belief in a supreme being, and even the atheist believes the concept of a supreme being. Well, where do you get the concept, even to come up with the concept? So the argument is there must be a supreme being because every culture in all time periods have some concept of a supreme being. That's a philosophical argument. Well, we know why it's true because of the scriptures in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. Romans 1, 18 to 21. Apostle Paul's writing... And he says in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that word suppress is the idea of pushing down, kind of like if you had a, a beach ball in the pool and you're trying to hold it under the water and it keeps popping up. That To deny God is like trying to hold a beach ball that's so big you can't hold it underwater. It keeps popping up. They're trying to suppress God. Because, and he says, because, verse 19, that which is known about God is evident within them. Notice, it's evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So every human being has the evidence of God within them. You have to suppress it. God put it in us to have a desire to know him or to know about him. And then it says, verse 20, for since the creation of the world... And this is a strong argument for creation, by the way, for people who don't believe in creation. Uh, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. So one of the things that's beautiful about the physical creation is the physical, physical creation gives us visible examples of the invisible nature of God himself. So when you see anything that's beautiful physically, that is a physical picture of the beauty of God. When you see anything physically that's powerful, that is a picture of the power of God. And majesty, and the expanse of the heavens, and all those things. God put those things in creation, so we go, wow, look at that. That's amazing. That's huge. That's beautiful. And that's to get us thinking about the nature of God. The invisible nature. You can't see it, but you can see it in creation. So he says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. So we'll get into this when we talk about soteriology, salvation, and people talk about what about the so called heathen, the people who have never heard the gospel. Um, that's really a false argument. You, you can't make that argument. Because God said he's revealed himself to everyone. And as people want to know more about him, he will reveal more and more of himself to them. Now, normally he uses a missionary or someone who, who brings the gospel, but there are times in the scriptures where we see that there are other methods that people come to know the Lord or the Lord transports someone miraculous so the per- person can get the gospel. So the universal belief argument is the idea that God, the supreme being, is a belief in all cultures. And we see why in the scriptures, because God put that concept in man. There's a second philosophical argument for the existence of God. It's called the anthropological. Um, That's just uh, the Greek word anthropos, which which means mankind. But it also is called the moral argument. You might want to write in there. It's a moral argument. Some people call it that. The anthropological argument or the moral argument, it has to do with the character of man. Character of man. And this argument goes like this. The conscience and moral nature of man demand a moral and self-conscious maker. The conscience and moral nature of man demand a moral and self-conscious maker. You see, where did our idea of right and wrong come from? Evolutionists try to explain where the physical nature of mankind and animals come from. They do a very poor job of that, but they do have a mechanism by which they theorize we got our physical bodies. But they have no way of explaining how we got our immaterial nature, our soul, our spirit, our conscience, our morality, and things like that. Those things are unexplainable um, and by evolution. And we know that those things came about because God gave them to us because we have a moral creator. And so for people to have a morality, they need a moral creator to do that. And then as we look at our notes, in every culture, there is an inherent sense of right and wrong. Every culture, no exception. Every culture, there is an inherent sense of right and wrong. Although due to man's sinful nature and environment, these standards vary among cultures, it is universally evident without exception, that mankind possesses a sense of morality. So not every culture agrees to the standards of morality. Some may say it's okay to have many spouses. Some may say you can only have a few. Some may say it's okay to do this, and others say you can't do that. They have different standards, but they all agree there should be a standard. There is a right and wrong. In your notes, it says, even the thief does not want someone stealing from him. So if you're a thief, it's not that you believe that stealing is right universally, you still think it's wrong if someone steals from you. Or even the adulterer doesn't want someone committing adultery with his wife or her husband. So you might commit adultery and say it's okay in this case, but you don't want it done to you. So that shows that there is a morality, a conscience that's been put in us. It says in your notes, the only adequate explanation For man's sense of morality is that the great moral being who created us planted the sense of morality within us. That is the best explanation. And again, like I said, if you don't believe in God, there's no explanation on why universally we have morality. And now, um, if you turn the page, we'll come back to uh, the scriptural reference in a moment in Romans 2. But if you turn the page, we have a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. And we've invited... Hobbs, the tiger, to join us tonight. I'll be Calvin. And we'll just see where Hobbs shows up. Okay, so for those listening on the podcast, we have Calvin and Hobbs, the tiger and little boy, talking. And Calvin says, whenever I need to do some serious thinking, I go for a walk in the woods. There are always a million distractions out here as he picks up a rock and looks for bugs. I don't believe in ethics anymore, he says, as he jumps over a log. As far as I'm concerned, the end justifies the means. Get what you can while well, the getting's good. That's what I say, Make, might makes right. The winners, write the history books. It's a dog-eat-dog world, so I'll do whatever I have to. and Let others argue about whether it's right or wrong. And then, of course, we have Hobbes pushing Calvin down, and, and Calvin goes, hey, and there he is, all covered with mud. Why'd you do that? You were in my way, now you're not. The ends justify the means. I didn't mean for everyone, you dolt. Just me. Huh. So here we see, this is the thief that says it's okay to steal, but you can't steal from me. Or the adulterer says it's okay to have adultery, you can't, but don't commit it against me. Um, he still believes in morality. He just shapes it so it's about him. What's the scriptural support for the moral or anthropological argument? It's found in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Romans two fourteen and 15. Paul writes in verse 14, For when Gentiles, he's referring to uh, non-Jews, but in this case people who weren't raised under the Jewish law or the, the rules of God. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, the Jewish law, God's rules, do instinctively the things of the law, God's law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Morality is written in their hearts. Right and wrong is written in their hearts. Their conscience bearing witness. Well, what is a conscience? Well, a conscience is a morality that God has placed in you. You can sear your conscience. You can convince your conscience wrong is right. But God placed a conscience, morality in all of us. So he says, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts are alternately accusing or else defending themselves. So our moral creator put morality in us and that's observable from both a philosophical and a theological standpoint. Okay, next one. These get a little more complicated as we go, a little more philosophical. Uh, the, The third one is called the cosmological argument Sometimes it's called the first cause argument. The cosmological argument. The word cosmos is the Greek word which means world. Um, it can also mean order to put things in order. That's why we get the word, by the way, cosmetics from this to put your face in order. <laughs> so, uh, but it can mean world or something that's in order. The cosmological argument argues that every effect must have a cause. Every effect must have a cause. The world, or cosmos, is an effect, and therefore must have an adequate cause. So everything has a cause and effect. you have to figure out what caused this effect. And we'll look at the scripture in Hebrews chapter three verse four, tells us the cause and effect of this world, Hebrews chapter three, verse four. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, chapter 3, verse 4 For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. There's a cause and effect. When you see a house, you know there was something that caused that house to be there. And so when you see the world around us, you know someone, a builder, caused that to exist so that's the cosmological argument there's a cause and effect and in your notes it says although evolution at first glance is often misunderstood to answer this question in reality evolution merely adds an eternal line of causes and effects without ever answering the question of what was the first cause so evolution tries to answer the cause and effect we are effects what caused us They trace it through evolution, but all evolution does is push it farther and farther back, and they can't tell you how the first thing, what caused the first thing. So they push it back, way back, billions of years, but they still don't know what caused that first thing. Uh, Someone say, well, who caused God? Well, God is not an effect, and therefore does not need a cause. God is eternal. He is an uncaused cause. And if you understand that, you're better than me and most theologians and philosophers. But God has always existed, so he doesn't need something to cause him. He's not an effect. So there brings us to the fourth philosophical argument on page 33 on the existence of God. The fourth one. We've seen the universal belief argument. Everyone believes in a supreme being. The anthropological or moral argument that we all have morality. We've seen the cosmological argument, the first cause. There's cause and effect. So what, what caused the effect that we call the world? And the, first, the fourth one is called the teleological argument or order and useful arrangement. It sometimes is called the uh, watchmaker argument as well. And teleos is a Greek word for complete or perfect or mature. So the teleological argument Um, that word just means mature, complete, or perfect, but it has the idea of something that's orderly and useful. And like I said, some people call this the, the watchmaker argument, which you'll see in a minute why it's called that. The argument goes like this. Order and useful arrangement in a system imply the intelligence and purpose of the originating cause. Since the world shows order and useful arrangement, it must have an intelligent originator. And... Now that's being called intelligent design. That's kind of the the buzzword right now, that the world shows intelligent design, so there must be an intelligent designer. So that's also this argument, too. It's just taken on slightly different wording. The intelligent design used to be called the watchmaker argument, the teleological argument, all of the same. So here's a a story quoted from uh, Wilmington, who's a a great uh, theologian. He writes this, one of the great names of British science, mathematics, and philosophy is Sir Isaac Newton, who lived between 1642 and 1727. Sir Isaac had a miniature model of the solar system made. A large golden ball representing the sun was at its center, and around it revolved smaller spheres representing the planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and the others. They were each kept in an orbit relatively the same as a real solar system. By means of rods, cogwheels, and belts, they all moved around the center of a gold ball in exact precision. A friend called on the noted man one day while he was studying the model. The friend was not a believer in the biblical doctrine of divine creation. According to reports, the conversation went as follows. The friend said, my Newton, what an exquisite thing. Who made it for you? Newton replied, nobody. The friend asked, nobody? Newton said, that's right, I said nobody. All of these balls and cogs and belts and gears just happened to come together, and wonder of wonders, by chance, they began revolving in their set orbits with perfect timing. Of course, the visitor got the point. Every creation implies a creator. Every design implies a designer. Just like every watch implies a watchmaker. Every creation implies a creator. Every design implies a designer. Just like every watch implies a watchmaker. And so just like we are smart enough to know when you look at a watch that there's a watchmaker, you ought to be smart enough to know when you look at the world that, that there is a creator. A uh, number of passages of scripture that we have listed here. I think we might look at all of them because I think teaching about creation is important because even in evangelical Christianity, there's a move toward theistic evolution, which is the most untenable of all positions. Theistic evolution says, we think the evolutionists have something right to say, and we think that the creationists have something to say, so we're going to combine the two opposing theories, they're totally opposite, and put them together and come up with a third one in the middle, that we think God is the one who created the idea of evolution. Well, that's ridiculous, because God tells us how everything was created, how he did it, Genesis chapter 1, and throughout the scriptures, he tells us um, all through scriptures. Again, we'll get to this a little bit later um, in our study, more specifically, but Let's start with Genesis 1.1. And if you're not going to believe the first verse of the Bible, literally, then where, when are you going to start believing the Bible? And in Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He created it. He's the creator. just says it right there. And I think we should believe it. And then he tells us in chapter 1 how he did it. And like I mentioned, some people who believe in a more allegorical method of interpretation start the allegory right here and see Adam and Eve as just an allegorical depiction of the human race, but they're not literal people, which becomes a problem because Adam is considered a literal person in the New Testament in the book of Romans who brought sin into the world like Jesus is a literal person who died for our sins. So you get rid of Adam, you get rid of Jesus Christ at the same time. So the allegorical method quickly falls apart. Um, you'll hear me talking about that from time to time because I, I find it untenable to do that with the scriptures. So uh, another passage to look at is Romans chapter 1, verse 20. We've been in that area of the, the Bible already. Romans 1:20. We looked at that. For since the creation of the world, as the verse we saw, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. Well, if you don't believe in creation, then you can't believe that verse tells us that God has been revealed in creation. Because that verse tells us God revealed himself in creation. You deny creation, then you deny that God revealed himself in creation. And then you can find him through the creation. And then Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. Hebrews 1, verse 2. It says, In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And notice this, through whom also he made the world. Through whom also he made the world. When we think of the Creator, God is Creator. We often think of primarily the Father is creating, and we'll see a little bit later in this study on the theology proper. We'll talk about the the Trinity: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three are God. Three persons, one God. And sometimes we forget, especially at Christmas time, that Jesus has always existed, and He existed as deity. He's always existed. He had things that He was doing, and we'll study that under Christology. And one of the things that Jesus was doing before he was born, he was creating the world. And we're told here in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, that Jesus, God, Christ, um, the second member of the Trinity, is through whom the world was made. The Father made the world through his Son, Jesus Christ. And to make that even more clear, we have Colossians chapter 1. And in Colossians 1, verses 15 and 16, again referring to Jesus... It says Jesus, referring to him in context, verse 15, and he is the image of the invisible God. So we can't see our invisible God, the Father. But Jesus is a physical image of the Father. Because how do, how do you hug the Father? He's a spirit. How do you relate to a spirit? It's a little tough to relate to a spirit. But you can relate to a God who takes on human form, which Jesus did. He is the image of the image of God, the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn is uh, referring to an uh, area of priority. So when you were the firstborn of a family, you had priority. You got the inheritance. And that's what it means here. He's the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things were created. So he's above all creation. He created In him all things are created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, so angels and angelic realms, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, that would refer not just to those on earth but those in the heavenlies because there are different levels of rulership and authority among the the angels and the fallen angels or demons. They have different levels of authority as well. He's over all that. All things have been created, notice, through him and for him. So when you think of creation, you can't think of just the Father. You have to think of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit was involved in creation. We're told in Genesis 1 that the Spirit hovered over the deep. And so the Trinity is involved. But the the key member of the Trinity that created is the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the argument, the teleological argument. Like I said, it can be called uh, the argument from intelligent design that intelligent design requires an intelligent designer, a creation requires a creator. The last argument, oh, this one, this one's just absolutely mind-blowing, the ontological argument, and ontos comes to the Greek word for being, so the ontological argument is the argument from being. It says this, and I'm quoting from Charles Rari: man has an idea of a most perfect being. This idea includes the idea of existence since a being otherwise perfect who did not exist would not be as perfect as a perfect being who did exist therefore since the idea of existence is contained in the idea of the most perfect being the most perfect being must exist you might have to read that like 10 times before you understand it but it's basically saying the only way you can be a perfect being is to exist because if you don't exist as a perfect being you're not perfect And that's that argument. I'm not sure that's the strongest argument of all the arguments, but it is one that's been given. Um, I pose a question there. If, If you don't believe there's a God, then why are you afraid to die? You know, why are people afraid to die? I mean, there's something in you that doesn't want to face a judgment. And I would guess that's why the unbeliever is afraid to die, because they're going to face judgment, and somehow they know that. Might be other reasons, but I would suggest that. So those are some philosophical arguments for the existence of God that you could use with an unbeliever, but also, of course, there are scriptural evidences of the existence of God, which as believers we hold to strongly. Which brings us to page 34, Roman numeral 2, the attributes of God. And we start off noting this. God is more than the sum of his attributes. That's important to understand. We, we don't know all of God's attributes. We're going to study his attributes. Does he have more than this? Well, he must. God is infinite. Remember that infinite is a measure of space. Eternity is a measure of time. So when we say God is infinite, that's limits. There are no limits. That's a measure of space. There are no limits. Uh, But when we talk about eternity, that's a limit of time. There's no limit in time as well. So I think I've used the example when a young lady is getting married. uh, She wants to know that her husband's going to love her with his whole heart. And that is a level of space. But she also wants to know that he's going to love her till death do us part. That's a measure of time. So you want great love, but you don't want it just for a couple minutes. <laughs> you want it for your whole life. And you don't want a little bit of love for your whole life. So God is both infinite and eternal. So God is more than the sum of his attributes. We, we, we're going to point to them, but we can't even begin to totally describe them. He is knowable yet incomprehensible. When we have listed all the attributes of God, we still have not fully described God. So if you leave here and go, I still don't quite understand God. Well, that's good. If you leave here and you totally understand God, we're in trouble. Your God is too small. Often for the purpose of study, God's attributes are divided into two broad categories. These two categories are called by several different names, none of which are totally satisfactory. Okay? For our purpose, we're going to call them, and these are the two categories we're going to have, incommunicable and communicable communicable attributes of God. And so you have them up there on the slide to help you spell them. So the two categories, incommunicable and communicable attributes of God. And we're going to see that the incommunicable attributes are attributes God alone possesses. God alone possesses and he does not communicate them or give them to another. He does not communicate them or give them to another. So they are unique to God. And so here's a list of the ones. Um, The first one is what we call omnipresence. And these are Latin words. And omni means all in Latin. And so omnipresence means God is everywhere present. Everywhere present. But more than that, he's everywhere present with his whole being at all times. His whole being at all times. So it's not like, honey, are you even listening to me? You know, <laughs> that you're, you're present physically, but you're not present mentally. God is completely present with His whole being at all times. And there are a number of scriptures. For sake of time, I'm just going to pick one of these. Um, I don't know, let's pick Psalm 139, 7 to 12. We won't read them all for sake of time, but you might want to look at them later. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 139, Verses 7 to 12. David is saying, verse 7, Where can I go from thy spirit, speaking to God? Or where can I flee from thy presence? The answer, of course, is nowhere. If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, and Sheol is a Hebrew word for the place of the dead, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me, and thy right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, Surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to thee, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to thee. And other passages that we're not going to look at say in Proverbs 15:3 that um, his eyes are in every place. He sees everything. So God is um, omnipresent. He's present everywhere. So then you get this question, is God even present in hell? So if you teach us in Sunday school, and, and a Sunday school child says, well, teacher, is God in hell? And you go, ah, ask Pastor Barry. Well, you don't have to do that. Here's the answer. Explanation. God's immediacy varies. In other words, his presence on his throne, or in the believer, differs from his presence in the lake of fire. People in the lake of fire will be separated from the face presence of God. When Christ was on the cross bearing the sins of the whole world upon himself, he sensed the Father turning of his face from him, and therefore cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Father was certainly still present, but not in the intimate sense that Jesus had always experienced. And so this face presence is the felt presence of God. So, is God in what we call hell? And we'll see later that the word hell is not a very descriptive English word. Um, And we'll we'll discover there's a place called Hades and a place of torments and Tartarus and in the Lake of Fire. But for our purposes, we'll just call it hell now because that's what we have in the King James Bible and many of our English Bibles. Is God in hell? Yes, he's everywhere. Do people in hell sense his presence? Absolutely not. So they don't sense or feel his presence. He feels absent to them. And we have some scriptures that are helpful for us to look at at this time. Uh, let's look at 2 Thessalonians 1.9. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9 and I'll pick it up in I don't know, let's pick it up in verse 6. Such a great passage. In verse 6, it's talking about the return of Christ. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction... And then it says, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So this passage tells us that eternal destruction involves being away from the presence of the Lord. But then turn to Revelation chapter 14. And in Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 to 11. And it says in Revelation 14:9, and another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, "If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of His anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone." And notice what it says: in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So Revelation. 14 says they'll be tortured in the presence of the Lamb. And 2 Thessalonians 1 says they will be away from the presence of God. How can both be true? Well, the explanation is, like I said, one is the felt presence and one is the actual presence. God is everywhere present at all times with his full being. But we don't always sense his presence. We don't feel his presence. And so the people in hell... Yes, God sees what's going on, but they don't feel his presence. They don't experience his presence. And we'll be talking a little bit more about hell and the afterlife, but often you have people jokingly say, well, I want to go to hell because all my friends will be there, and they joke. Well, they have to remember that friendship is a heavenly concept, not a hell concept. Everything good is heavenly. Everything bad is hell. So, you can't impart heavenly concepts of goodness and friendship and love and assume that will be in hell. But we'll talk more about that when we get to the study of last things. So, that's God's omnipresence. He is everywhere present with his whole being at all times. Which brings us to a second incommunicable attribute, an attribute he does not communicate um, to other people, he does not give them to another. And that's omniscience, omniscience. And omni is all, and in this case, science, I think, means knowledge. So all knowledge. God knows all things, both actual and potential. And we talked about this in a sermon recently. Often people realize God knows all things actual, but he also knows all things potential. And if you think about it, that has to be true because otherwise he can't tell you or warn you against what would happen if you make a bad decision or a good decision. He knows which way it will go. How can God lead you or encourage you to go one way rather than another? But the only way he can lead you is if he knows both the actual and the potential. He knows what will happen if you choose this way and what will happen if you choose that way. So looking at your notes, God knows all things, both actual and potential, whether they be past, present, or future, and he knows them perfectly, and he has always known them from all eternity. So he knows everything that could have happened, as well as everything that will happen. And we will see a little bit later that God knowing something doesn't cause it to happen. It doesn't cause it to happen. Just because you know something doesn't mean that you cause it to happen, um, a doctor might diagnose you with pancreatic cancer. He knows that means you're going to die. Well, he doesn't cause you to die. He just knows that's going to happen. It's a human example. God's knowledge is greater than that, of course. But just because God knows what you're going to do, it doesn't cause you to do it. He knows you're going to do it because you're going to do it. Um, a number of verses there. I think we'll, we'll skip those for tonight for sake of time. Uh, let's fill in your blanks here. God never discovers anything. God never discovers anything because he already knows it all. He is never surprised. He's never surprised. Uh, reminds me when I was in high school, my pastor, he, he tried to trick God sometimes. He'd pretend like he's going this way and then he'd quickly turn around and go this way and go, God, did you know that? You know, and, and of course God knew that. He is never surprised and never fooled. You can't fool God. You can't fool him. You're never gonna scare him by going boo, okay? He knows everything. Um, Again, we won't look up all these verses for sake of time, but Proverbs 15.3 say, The eyes of the Lord are in every place. And in Psalm 147.5, His understanding is infinite. In Isaiah 40, it talks about who has taught your spirit. Uh, Isaiah 46, that He declares the end from the beginning. And in Matthew 10.30, the hairs on your head are numbered. So a number of scriptures is so that God knows everything. That's omniscience. So then we come to the problem does God's omniscience on page 35 violate man's free will? Does God's omniscience violate God, man's free will? In other words, if he knows what we're going to do, how can you have a free will? And of course, the answer is no. Man's actions take place because God knows them. I mean, God, man's actions don't take place because God knows them, God knows them because they will take place. But they're not causal. His knowledge is not causal, just like the example I gave of the the doctor. Okay, let's look at the the third attribute here, omnipotence. So omni, all, potence, power, all, powerful. So I'm going to ask you a trick question. I'll tell you it's a trick question so that you don't feel tricked. (laughs) Is there anything God can't do? And... It's not really a trick question. You need to understand, is there anything God can't do? And the answer is, we think the answer is no. And the answer is actually yes. He's all-powerful, but there are things that God can't do. Do, Would you like to know the explanation of that? Yeah, absolutely. God is all-powerful and able to do anything consistent with his own nature. That's the key. God is all-powerful and able to do anything consistent with his own nature. For example, God cannot lie or steal. He can't do it. It's contrary to his nature. Since both of these acts would be contrary to his nature. So when we say, can God do anything? He can't. He can't lie. He can't steal. He can't commit an act of immorality. He can't fail you. He can't die. I mean, that's why Jesus had to become a man, because God can't die. God can't die for your sins. Because you can't die. So, Jesus had to become a perfect man because only a man can die. But a man can't take away your sins because men are sinful. So, he had to be God so he'd be a perfect man. So, he had to be God and he had to be man so that he could die and be perfect and take away your sins. So, question Is there anything God can't do? Yes, he can't do anything contrary to his nature. And then we have a, a number of scriptures there that talk about nothing's too difficult for God. Um, God can do all things in those scriptures. Again, I think for sake of time, we won't look them up tonight. So then there's a problem. Can God create a rock too heavy for him to lift? Okay, well, can God create a, you know, um, basically this is the answer I was told in seminary. Uh, God cannot do the absurd or the logically impossible. This question is both absurd and illogical. The very nature of the question itself is an impossibility. And if you don't understand that answer, that's okay. I don't totally understand it either. But that's the answer. <laughs> it's an absurd question. you know. It's... Okay, so we've seen that God is everywhere present. We see that he knows all things. We see that he's all-powerful. And the fourth one is immutability, immutability. And that basically means that he doesn't change. He doesn't change. God, in his essence, that's in his being, who he is, um, God, in his essence, attributes, That's the blank there. God in his essence, attributes, consciousness, and will is unchangeable. Is unchangeable. In other words, God never differs within himself. He may on occasion alter how he deals with mankind, but God's divine nature remains constant. His divine nature remains constant. So there are a couple places in the Old Testament where it says God changes his mind. And people would say, well, God can't change his mind because God can't change. Well, God can change what he does. He just doesn't change his character. His character is unchangeable. His nature is unchangeable. But he can change what he decides to do. All through the Bible, we have him changing what he does. When people repent, he goes, I'm going to destroy you. And go, oh, wait, don't destroy me. I repent. He goes, okay, I'm not going to destroy you. And he changes. And there be times where he says God changes his mind. His mind was, I'm going to destroy them. They repent. He goes, okay, I changed my mind. But his character of holiness and righteousness and justice and wrath didn't change. So he never changes in his character. Um, Malachi 3.6 says, God says, I do not change. Hebrews 13.8, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. James 1.17, there's no variation or shifting of shadows. So all verses that talk about that God doesn't change. So those are his, what we call his, incommunicable attributes. The ones that God alone possesses that he does not give to another. Then you have attributes that God has that he shares with us. They're attributes that you and I can have because we're in the image of God. So these are the attributes that God of God that mankind also possesses. It says see chart Okay? So if you turn over to page 36, we have some charts there. Um, the first one is a list of incommunicable attributes. It lists some that I didn't mention already uh, that you can look at later. And then it also lists some communicable attributes. And... For those listening online who don't have them in front of them, let me just read them quickly. We also have the definitions and the scriptures given on the chart, but I'll just read some of the attributes. Remember, this is not a complete list. There's no way we can have a complete list because God is infinite. But we know that God has the attribute of justice, of moral equity. He doesn't show favoritism. We know that he's a God of love. He seeks the highest good of humans at his own infinite cost. We know that God is benevolent. He has unselfish concern for the welfare of those he loves. We know that he's a God of grace, that he supplies those he loves with undeserved favors according to their needs. We know he's a God of goodness. That which constitutes the character of God is shown by benevolence, mercy, and grace. He's a God of freedom. God is independent from his creatures. He doesn't need us. So we need to be careful when we talk about God. We sometimes say, oh, God needs me to do this for him. God never needs you to do anything for him. God has no needs. Um, And I realize now, having said that, I didn't read something on that one page, did I? Um, Under immutability, it says a person can only change in two directions. He may go from better to worse or from worse to better. But it is impossible for God to do either, otherwise he would not be God. So God can't change because the only way you can change, you can either get better or you can get worse. Now, in your case, I hope you get better. But God can't change because he can't get worse. He can't get better because he's perfect. I forgot to read that, but it's very important. But it reminded me as we're looking at his attributes um, of his his goodness, his freedom. He's independent of us. Holiness. God is righteous, perfect, set apart, or separate from all sin. He's righteous. I won't read all the definitions now. He has truth. He's genuine. He has veracity, faithfulness, personality, life. Mercy, persistence, and all those things are characteristics of God. So, hopefully, you know God better after tonight, but you will never know God fully. And it's not enough to know these academically, we want to know these experientially. So, I would challenge you to go back over these attributes and maybe pick one a day, um, you know, at least the incommunicable ones, and think about what that means to you during the day. That He is. Omniscient, he knows everything about what's going on. He knows how your heart feels. He knows what you're going through. He knows your good things and your bad things. He knows everything. Think about his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness. And so if he doesn't intervene and do something that you want him to do, it's not because he can't, and it's not because he's not loving, and it's not because he's not good, because those things never change. It's because he has a different purpose for your life, and he's using that in your life for his purposes, and you accept it, and you trust him, and you thank him. So I'd encourage you to go through these attributes and kind of mention, uh, kind of meditate on those during the week. So that leaves us on page 38. We'll come to that not till next year. Good point. So we have a break, uh, Christmas break and New Year's break, and we come back together on January 7th, and we will continue on theology proper. So have a, have a great Christmas. And New Year's, people watching online and podcasts, I wish you that as well. Let's pray and we'll close tonight's session. Well, Lord, you're absolutely amazing. And you already knew that. (laughs) But Lord, we are discovering that more and more as we get to know you better. I would pray for each one in the sound of my voice that they would be challenged to meditate and think about and enjoy the attributes we've talked about and get to know you better. Lord, reveal yourself to us so we might know you better and serve you better for the glory of your kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.